Meet Yelp for Restaurants. Not the software company, but the people who love restaurants so much they formed a team dedicated to our industry. Before Catherine joined the customer success team, she managed the modern in New York. Yeah, that modern. Before Julia joined the team, she worked at Oshaval in Chicago for half a decade. Yelp is for restaurants because our people are restaurant people. Meet the new Yelp at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast. Now here we go. So if you're trying to like make your budget work, I would say that you could probably dumb down some of the finishes, some of the mm-hmm. seating, some of those things, because you can do so much with lighting at night, obviously. If you are like a dinner concept, it can be very advantageous to do the full package of lighting and getting all those layers. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. Do you ever walk into a restaurant and it just makes sense? The lighting, the design, the floor plan, the sound, the food, and the service. It tells a complete story. I'd argue, based on personal experience, that achieving that level of harmony is easier said than done. It takes an expert eye and operational experience to pull it off. And the team over at Studio Unlimited has built a reputation for being the best in the world in achieving that harmonious outcome. Today, we sit down with its founders, Greg and Terry, to discuss the do's and don'ts of restaurant design. Well, I started, I guess, in Pittsburgh in 1995 or 96. I was working in a restaurant there for a few years and kind of the idea of this space always kind of resonated with me. I think the way that it was done, you know, where it was located, there was something more than just the food and beverage that was kind of inspiring people to return on a daily basis. Thought it was a you know pretty successful location, still open to this day. Uh, I might as well shout it out. It's called Mad Max in Oakland. Anyhow, so I think the ownership there put a emphasis on design and they opened several other restaurants in Pittsburgh, all of them having unique design and feeling to them. So I think that was kind of like fell into my subconscious. So even though I graduated with a studio arts degree from Pittsburgh, ended up living in Seattle and was kind of bouncing around a bit and, you know, just had this notion to go back to school for interior design and really just, I think I always wanted just to do restaurants. But as my career started in that path, it just didn't shake out that way. I was doing commercial design, a lot of offices. And then when I had the opportunity to start my own company in 2009, I was doing high-end residential and retail and some offices. So really just hadn't gotten into food and beverage at all. It was just through my own interest and kind of like almost like knocking on doors that got me my first opportunity, which was just a small cafe remodel and extension. And two projects later, we did Bestia. So it was like kind of escalated quickly. (laughs) Yeah. So along the ride, I met Terry, but you may want to find out a little bit about her first. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Terry, share your path as well. Uh, I grew up in Montana. I went to Montana State University. 
I graduated with a degree in interior design, but when I came down here, I did not follow that path directly. I ended up working in a furniture store where we did custom furniture and decided that I wanted to do that possibly for a living. So myself and another woman started a uh, furniture factory. <laughs> Thought that was a great idea. We're like, hey, we need a table saw, a router. That's all we need, right? And, you know, get some carpenters and we can do this thing. And so that was a learning experience for probably about 12 years. We were semi-successful at it, but it was just a really tough gig in California to manufacture furniture. So I got out of that and for a couple of years, just kind of did some like basic general custom furniture consulting for different furniture stores and designers. And when I was working in a furniture store, I bumped into Greg and he was looking for somebody to do mill work for a project in the Palisades, which we're still working on to this day. <laughs> on a and so he's like, hey, if you're just doing outside consulting, just come hang out at the office. You can learn the design world that, you know, maybe use your degree. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> so, so, sounds great. So I, obviously my focus has always been in this office. It's always been furniture and mill work. And I'm more of the macro. And I think Greg always ends up being more of the, I'm the micro. He's the, the macro. macro. I'm the micro. macro. <laughs> he's the big macro. <laughs> How long have you two been together? Since I think 2013 is when I was able to convince her to come in. You know, it was one of those things where she was kind of working out of my office in downtown. And then she was kind of assisting on some projects at first. And then I had to go on vacation <laughs> <laughs> for like a few weeks. So I just handed her this restaurant project. <laughs> and that was pretty much it. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so since 2013, closing in on 10 years. Yeah, wow. I want to talk about that nagging feeling. I think that as restaurateurs, we feel it a lot as well, that what I'm doing in this moment isn't what I should be doing. And that's a terrifying feeling, especially when you're working in a business that you own or you have a secure job working for a company where when you clock out, you don't really have to give a shit anymore. And so I want to talk about the entrepreneurial leap, the leap that you made, Terry, to join this organization, because it's not just a series of successes, right? It's try and fail, try and fail, try and succeed, try and fail. Talk to me about what you think ultimately has made Studio Unlimited so successful. So for us, I think it kind of starts with relationships, frankly. I think over the years, we've made some strong relationships with our clients or people in the industry. So I'd like to think that we're kind of, at least amongst the folks that we know, that we're kind of first of mind, so to speak, when products do present themselves. I mean, obviously, it doesn't just stop there because we have honed our craft and you know, our professionals that we do. And at the end of the day, we want to make sure that all the parts and pieces kind of work for the project. Sure, do projects go over budget? Yes. Are there change orders? As you know, yes, it <laughs> happen. But I think for us, we're able to take a step back. We are business owners ourselves. We understand the restaurant industry. And each client has their, comes with their own set of goals. But we try to kind of match what we are providing to those goals so that we're not trying to force agendas on a constant basis 
or anything like that. Sometimes, yes, we have to push them out of their comfort zone. But ultimately, I think what makes us successful is kind of the delivering on the promise and I guess kind of backing what we've delivered as well. It would not be odd to see us on site, like moving lights around or like, you know, fixing things after the fact and and whatnot. So, yeah, I mean, I think we're just really good listeners. I mean, Greg's always, I mean, you'll always see him out there, like just chatting it up with chefs. We love to go out to restaurants constantly. I mean, I think we love just the industry in general. And I think we can take and extract a lot of that when we're designing a restaurant and Greg's always, like I said, you know, he forms the relationships, but he's a really good listener. And I think that's what really helps in the design process is just paying attention to what the client really wants, being respectful of their budgets. I think we just really care about that. And I know you're selective. And so I'm curious to know what makes for a great client in terms of disposition, mindset, intention, what do you look for? What are deal breakers? I mean, <laughs> it's funny. That's kind of, I don't want to say it's shifted, mm-hmm. obviously, right now, because our team has grown quite a bit. And in fact, we just hired a licensed architect so we can kind of handle a lot more in-house now. So we offer interior design, lighting design, and architecture now. So a little bit more in a one-stop shop situation. So obviously, some of the first things we look at are financials, right? <laughs> Does the client actually have the money to do what they say they're going to do. But I think in terms of fit, we tend to thrive with people who are kind of smaller groups or people that have strong vision. They're very passionate about what they do and they have a great story that always helps develop the just the general concept for sure. Yeah. Like in terms of like artistry and whatnot, like somebody who's, you know, I mean, <laughs> lack of better word, like somebody who's real you know like somebody who's who's in it for what we deem the right reasons i guess you know mm-hmm. it's not just like a you know a money grab situation or you know here's an idea that i heard and this looks popular so we just get we're going to open like 15 of these things it's just not that's not what doesn't really resonate with us and i think we usually fall flat in those yeah. circumstances and i would also say i mean in every once in a while if, if even if somebody doesn't have the budget but they have that passion and you're just really mm-hmm. You really love the idea. We're always willing to take those jobs because, you know, we're, we're excited to, you know, develop that with them yeah. and see where it goes. Let's talk about location assessment. It's one of your core competencies. And I think it's a really interesting conversation to have. I have only brought in designers after I've already chosen the location. I owned and operated three locations on my own. I chose those locations for a variety of reasons. The first one, because it was, right in front of me. I got a good deal on it. It was what was available. The second one I picked up was a two-story, 6,000-square-foot fine dining restaurant in the middle of downtown LA. Why, after opening a dive bar in Hollywood, I chose to go that direction, I still don't know. But I did. And then I had to live with it because I signed like a 10-year lease. And then out of that, we spun a fast, casual concept, which again was an opportunity. But if I could do it all over again, I think it would have been wise to start with the location assessment. And so I'm curious to know from your perspective, how do you define a great location? What are the essential elements? Well, I think at least first and foremost, we've been, I guess, blessed, you could say, (laughs) with like some of the big projects that we've worked on, 
that have been just like the bones of the building have been good, meaning like the architecture of the building is something that plays a role as a character in the space versus something that's more of a contemporary new build kind of construction, which then, I mean, that's a blank canvas, so you can have a lot of fun with that as well. But I think the ones that seem to resonate with the most people are the ones that already have a little patina on them and more age. I mean, that's one aspect from a designer perspective. Right. Natural light, obviously, is a big thing. Mm-hmm. I think especially now, Los Angeles has seemed to finally catch up with itself, meaning that we have a lot more patio design and patio opportunities now than we ever have. So I would say if you've got the opportunity to snag something that allows you like substantial outdoor space, that is a draw for sure. But I mean, everything else is kind of a crapshoot. Like I would say, I look at like easy to get to, is there parking, those types of things. Right. But then when you look at like Bestia, one of our most successful, it's like, that was none There's of There's nothing convenient about that restaurant. Yeah. 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 And for those that don't know, it's one of, if not the busiest restaurant in Los Angeles. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but then you look at Petty Cash next door, tried to open, they immediately sure. shut down. Like that place that's right next to it just can't seem to get off the ground. But obviously, a lot of that has to do with the bones of that building. It's a tough place to have a restaurant. There's a few things. I mean, I shouldn't have brushed off some things, but, you know, we've got like, does it have power? Does it have plumbing? So even if you have this cool old warehouse building, what are the resources or the utilities in the space? Because we've done enough of these things where we know that like a huge amount of your budget is going towards the MEP, the mechanical, electrical and plumbing portion of build out, which makes restaurant design so much more unique, I think, than any other builds. And then in terms of actual location within the geography of the city would be, what are you trying to achieve? What is your concept? What is in your immediate area? Especially in a dense city scape, it's, I think, trying to find the pockets that are underserved where you probably can raise your bar for more success. I mean, there's obviously like the high traffic locations, which can be good as long as your concept stands out. Those tend to be better with like known quantities. Let's talk about concept development. What does that process look like when people come to you? Let's say they have an abstract idea. How do you steer them in the right direction? What does that developmental process look like? I mean, I think it's just asking a lot of questions about their process. Like, how did you get your start? Where have you traveled that spoke to you? What is your favorite thing about your job as a chef? When you start to like talk to them about all of these things, it just leads in a direction. One of our clients was like, they were from, well, they were from Orange County, but their family was from Vietnam. And so he went and lived in Vietnam for like, it was supposed to be like one year and it ended up being like four. But he just had a lot of really great stories about his journey and just living there and what like stood out to him, what he found so beautiful. And it immediately just starts this whole process of, you know, you just can get all of these ideas that I think that you can easily work with and help develop your concepts. So I think it's just really digging into their history. Are you a small business owner? Did you know that Visa's online small business hub has tools, discounts, and resources to help you run your business? So whether you're a business beginner or an entrepreneurial expert, find the solutions, tools, and tips you need to help you take your business to the next level. 
Plus, if you have a Visa Business Credit or Debit card, you can get access to cardholder benefits like Visa Savings Edge, a savings program which can help you save on everyday business expenses like office essentials, travel, and more. When you enroll your Visa Business Card in Visa Savings Edge, you'll have access to valuable offers, which can help turn qualifying business purchases made with your enrolled Visa Business Card into savings for your business. Learn more at visa.com slash smallbusinesshub. Once again, that's visa.com slash smallbusinesshub. Visa, a network working for everyone. I'm curious to know, how have the priorities of the restaurateurs that you serve changed as a result of the pandemic when it comes to restaurant design? Takeaway, we've had to deal a lot with like adding a takeout window or just trying to adjust for if that ever happens again. <laughs> Hopefully not in our time. <laughs> and outdoor, or like patio seating. And even on the interiors, it's like just making it feel open and airy and just inviting in that way where people can feel comfortable instead of like dark booths yeah things like that like yeah Yeah. definitely like adding which is something of a bit of a hallmark for us is like you know the the greenery aspect that we've kind of worked into a lot of our restaurants so i think people again want that connectivity to nature as much as possible to make people feel at ease and comfortable but i think the takeaway business it's complicated because it's already complicated to design a restaurant because there's so many moving parts and pieces i've always said like it's kind of like a machine right so it's a little bit of designing the parts and pieces because you've got the front of house staff you've got the back of house staff you've got bartenders you've got the client point of view like i mean the restaurant's got to be a lot of different things to different people and it's got to function efficiently as well and you can't let those folks down there's a restaurant that we did downtown recently called Gusto Green. And it's like, it's like kind of nice to go in there because the staff loves it. They tell us about it. And it's kind of nice to hear that from the staff. So that makes a difference. So adding that complexity is the like DoorDash component, like the pickup. The manufacturing component. is really what we're talking about, right? Is that from a back of house perspective, there is more of a central focus on manufacturing. Instead of how do we create the menu that we want to execute, it's how can we do it most efficiently? That's what I'm hearing on the street. But I'm wondering, how are you designing for that? How does it adjust the footprint? When I was building out restaurants was, you know, that you wanted the back of house to be as small as possible so that you could seat as many people as possible in front of house. Because that was the business model. The people come in, they dine, hopefully they leave quickly and they tell their friends. Yeah. Yeah. Right. (laughs) And well, the minute you're adding that, I mean, we're working on a cafe, a coffee house in Fresno right now, and they want to add a takeaway component. They actually got really lucky and did it to their first restaurant that they opened, which was pre-pandemic. And that, I think, was a saving grace for them is that they actually had a takeaway window. They're trying to insert it into this space, and it's a really awkward back of house. And so it's just another one of those components that eats away the front of house seating. And then they're struggling with getting the landlord to be okay with like cutting a hole in the front of their facade for this takeaway window. It's just another one of those components that we have to think about that we've never really had to think about before. So it does add time and energy and you need to make it look good because these takeaway windows, they're not cute. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the other side of that is just the flow of the restaurant. 
because now takeaway windows are like a small percentage, I would say. Most restaurants don't have that opportunity to do those. So they have to deal with getting food to go out to, like I said, like the third party carriers, delivery services, whatever. But a lot of places don't want to be staring at a bunch of delivery drivers coming in the front door with their clients, especially in like a moderately higher end restaurant or whatever it is. So looking at ways to kind of divide that up or making sure that there are pickup spaces that are like a little bit more discreet or something like that. Or we're seeing a lot of people that are doing sidecars, meaning like a separate, almost like market space has been kind of a popular thing where they're doing kind of secondary, more like fast casual components to the main restaurant. So that way, like all of that traffic doesn't even come through the front door anymore, right? If you're doing something else somewhere else, also giving you an opportunity to lower your labor costs right? Because you're doing this other takeaway business, which is another huge component now, given the state of the economy and and, uh, wages and all that stuff. What about overall footprint? So again, I owned a 6,000 square foot, two-story restaurant in downtown Los Angeles. And I look at the business models of 2022 and I say, I could have made the same money or more out of 3,000 square feet. Do you see smaller footprints or are people still as aggressive as they've always been? I think they're getting big still. I mean, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, I think to what Terry was saying earlier is that the kitchens, I would say it's still kind of like a 60, 40 split, right? Like 60 front of house, 40 kitchen. Yeah. So I think people are still like ambitious. Well, I think there's just a lot. I mean, a lot of our clients, I mean, they're the menu is such that they need a lot of different equipment. I remember when we did, and Georgina downtown, which we're still very sad to this day to see that it's gone, but she had her whole baking pastry. It took a lot of space in that tiny little, it wasn't even that big of a footprint as it was, but I feel like she was pushing 50% of the space with her kitchen. Yeah, it depends on what you're trying to execute, yeah. right? Like, I mean, if you're like a super low labor model, like our clients up in Fresno, they start got into the business doing like pokey restaurants, you know. You need refrigeration, basically. Like, you know, you need to make some rice. So it's like kind of keeping things kind of simple, low cost, doesn't take up a lot of square footage. Obviously, we're seeing a lot more, I guess, ambition in the fast casual side still. Like that still seems to be a thriving market. And that's, I think, strictly like labor induced. And now we're probably going to see it from a food cost because food costs are so high now we might be seeing more uh, cross utilization in kitchens where the kitchen footprint will start to get a little smaller because of that and that the ingredients are slimmed down. I could talk to you too about sound and lighting all day long, <laughs> right? As a restaurateur, it's all you really think about it. And it's something that I think the patrons <laughs> never... <my> question. <laughs> because yes, I... but only after we've built out. Yes. That's when you begin to think about it, when you're just slightly adjusting the lights all day, all night, every day, every night, and then playing with the volume of the music, zone by zone, trying to figure out what's perfect, not for 10 days or 10 weeks, but for literally 10 years. Lighting is everything. I had the advantage of coming up in this industry through the nightclub industry. So I saw the power of lighting. I saw that you could move people from tables to the dance floor simply by adjusting the lighting and luring people in that way. So I know how powerful it is. What do most restaurateurs or many restaurateurs get wrong when it comes to lighting? Everything. Other than everything. 
they cut the budget. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably problem number one. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think lighting generally, sorry, I should say architectural lighting, which to folks that don't know what that means, it's the non-decorative, unsexy lighting in the space. That's actually the sexy lighting at the end of the day. That lighting and the industry around it, it's very expensive. (laughs) It's just generally not inexpensive. And so we go into a lot of, especially right now here in California with the Title 24 energy codes and things like that, the requirements to put a lighting package together in your space is pretty restrictive. And where you're utilizing LEDs, which are generally more expensive, at least as an upfront cost, which, you know, is a little bit of a gamble for a restaurant, understood. But it's a lot of technology and the technology does not always work really well together, as I'm sure you know. So we are constantly battling this kind of like programming side of things, timing of things getting installed. Lighting is like, (laughs) it's a reason why I don't have hair. (laughs) because of like every job it's It's the reason why electricians are always angry (laughs) yeah yeah so i mean i would say like at the end of the day they're going to see especially from us because we take it really seriously and put together a pretty serious package of lighting because we also think it's like the most important thing in the space roughly it's about like understanding why you're paying for what you're paying for because if you start to go kind of cheap at it it's a nightmare later. I mean, it's maybe a nightmare anyway, but, yeah. <laughs> but it is yeah. for sure a nightmare after the fact. And especially with LEDs, you know, the color output or the color rendition of the lighting is so critical. If you go to a fine dining restaurant and you will go to many of them in this city and the food just comes out looking yellow because the lighting yeah. is so terrible. So you're not capturing the food as it's intended. It looks beautiful in the kitchen, comes out to the guests and I mean, people want to take photos of their food and you kind of can't. You have to like do a lot of back end work. But I think that plays into the experience. If I'm spending a lot of money on a meal or if there's like, you know, some big time chef that we're going out to dinner, I want to see the food as it was intended to be served. And that's only like a part of the lighting experience, right? So I think working with a lighting designer for sure, or somebody who really knows lighting and don't go to Home Depot and just buy your lights. I think in lighting, as with everything, it's just you need to layer lighting. It's that up lighting that's behind bank caps and all of those things. And I think that's the part that people are like, oh, because linears can be pretty expensive. So I think that's always the first thing to go. But I think there's always ways you can work around that. It's like, okay, maybe that's just phase two, but let's make the room for it so that once you're successful, (laughs) you're making your money, you can layer in that lighting down the road. And you brought up nightclubs, right? So nightclubs... In particular, a prime example of how you could spend money on lighting. Nightclubs are like 95% lighting. That's it. It's a warehouse with $250,000 worth of lights in it. So if you're trying to like make your budget work, I would say that you could probably dumb down some of the finishes, some of mm-hmm. the seating, some of those things, because you can do so much with lighting at night, obviously, if you're yeah, a night, nighttime, concept. nighttime concept. Yes, daytime yeah. concepts are different tough, story. Yeah. But if you're yeah. like a dinner concept, right. then it can be very advantageous to do the full package of lighting and, and getting all those layers. I'm sure you guys have sat across from many first-time restaurateurs. And I'm sure that in some of those meetings, you've thought to yourself, oh, this is really going to hurt for them. You know, whether you choose to take the <laughs> 
right? Whether you choose to take the job or not, you can just tell that it's going to be a long, hard road for that individual. And Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, are there rookie mistakes that people should avoid? Are there consistent mistakes that people should avoid when going into this process? Well, going back to your original comment, actually, is getting an architect and or designer involved during the process of looking, looking for a space, I would say is like the first mistake people make. We constantly get brought in like, and we'll find out, oh, wait, you signed a lease like three months ago. And now we've got to get this stuff done. But then like a month and a half for the landlord and your lease, you're going to start paying rent soon. So, I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff and we can also like assess LOIs and things like that. There's like a helpful part of having an architect or designer in that process for sure. So that's mistake number one. I would say like what Terry was saying, which is mistake number two is kind of starting the process backwards. Any business that's putting themselves out there needs to have kind of a brand identity. And I think a lot of people still maybe don't grasp what that means, but that's the engine and the soul of your business and how it's interpreted by the public. If you have not solved that process early on, it makes it really hard. I mean, that comes before you even start looking for a place. That's yeah. when you're doing your business plan. You've already worked with a brand manager that can like help you. I mean, there's just so much of that that you can even include in your business plan because it just really helps you focus, again, focus, focus. focus. Yeah. <laughs> you know. And so then by the time you get to us and we're looking for location, it just makes that process go so much more smoothly. Yeah. But like so much of the time we get brought in late then we find out that they don't even have a branding team, right? Then we bring in somebody who they think is just going to slap a logo on something, right? So the brand team is like looking at us <laughs> for direction, which it should be the other way around. Money. Money that? is what I'm hearing. That ultimately, at the end of the day, the end. it does. I wouldn't argue that point. And I would also say that there is something to be said for starting off on the right foot. So many of these businesses are bootstrapped, but that's not to say that you couldn't raise a little more money from family and friends or take a little bit more time on the front end. Because I can tell you, for our second location, Pru and Proper, I spent hours and hours and hours and days and weeks and months trying to find the perfect second location for a concept that I hadn't even conceptualized yet. I just wanted a second location. I just wanted a second restaurant. And I think that when you look at from the day we signed the lease till nine months later when we opened, I mean, there was on the front page of the LA Times food section was a photo of me and a title that said 504, which was the name of my bar in Hollywood, is coming to downtown LA. But because I hadn't conceptualized what the build out itself would look like, I ended up building myself a fine dining restaurant that in no way resembled the bar that I owned in Hollywood. So (laughs) four weeks before we opened, we started this rebrand process. What are we going to call it? What are we going to do? What is the menu going to look like? Because there's no way that people were going to understand that these two things that were so different fell under the same brand. And I only share it because I think you're right. I think that the focus and intention is there a lot of times. It's just focused on the wrong things with an incomplete intention. This is an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. There are tens of thousands of independent restaurant owners and operators listening. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to share? Don't stop building new restaurants. (laughs) (laughs) 
I kind of going back to my comment about the locations, like what's interesting is that especially when you've got kind of a big idea, you want to test it out. You're not sure because obviously we've all seen people just toss money away because they had a big idea. They wanted what they wanted. They didn't want to listen. And I think giving like hard looks at applications and like looking at those underserved areas, maybe the things that maybe doesn't really you know, it's not as sexy, the rent's not as expensive, whatever it is. But using those locations first, especially if you're somebody who's just starting out and wants to kind of get in the game, like make a name for yourself in a way that's sustainable, in a way that you can, the rent's not going to crush you if it's a slow build because you work on the neighborhood first and then maybe you start to get more attention overall. I mean, we were talking about Fresno and, you know, it's like a tertiary city in California in terms of size or secondary, maybe, but it was like so underserved and our clients up there are doing crazy well because they're providing a quality product to the folks there that just didn't have a lot of options. So, I mean, I would definitely say like looking at those I would say yeah. it's like when selecting your designer, look at their body of work. If it resonates with you, and you decide you want to go with them, I think then the next step is just to trust your designer as well. Sometimes it's hard to like give up a little bit of that, that there's a struggle there. Yeah. And so I think it's like just trusting your designer to move forward with it. Wait until everything's in the space before judging. Before before panicking. (laughs) Don't panic if the space is not finished. (laughs) That's the team from Studio Unlimited. For more on Greg and Terry, visit studiounlimited.com If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Copel. You've been listening to Full Comp.